everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If you were to ask the average person what they want out of life, they would likely answer that they wanted to be happy. But do they? Perhaps that's a crazy question. Can they? That might be the more appropriate query. Is it possible that when people are conceptualizing their futures, the happiness they envision might actually be something else entirely? As always, philosophizing is about to go and make the simple quite difficult. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, you sent me an article a couple days ago and you said, man, this is a really cool topic. We should talk about this. Yep. And um, I thought, well, we've already talked about happiness. And then I scrolled through the entire episode back catalog and I said, oh, no, we haven't talked about happiness. How did we, how did we, <laughs> we manage to miss We assumed we had because it felt like we had, but right. there we go. How did we manage to miss uh, that? Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll look at happiness today. And, um, you know, as we talk about it, we're going to see another concept sort of come into the situation um, that, that is kind of a foil to happiness. And um, we we can discuss the article that you sent me and how they how they interact. But sure. we'll start with what is happiness. <laughs> well, if you look at the etymology of it, which is all you know, I love to look at where words emerge from. So the word happiness is Old Norse. Thor just is hanging with me these days. <laughs> it's Old Norse, and 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 it means essentially luck or chance. Hmm. That's where it comes from. And then and then it and then. Uh, there's a the root which is uh, I'm not I'm not going to pronounce it properly but H A E P I C hepic which is an old Norse root and it means equal hmm. and and so you know back in the day so to speak 600 years ago it was it was um, good luck it was success it was contentment really uh, but then in the 1700s we have an Irish philosopher. Who is, is talking about uh, the greatest happiness for the greatest numbers? This a fellow named Hutchinson, but that was also going with some of the uh, deontological and 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 consequentialist philosophies and and Kant and so on and so forth. So lots of people talk about these things. I thought I'd bring up this the Irish philosopher just because Hutchinson, because it's not just one philosopher who brings this up. And there was an interesting little side note, a little inter- article in philosophy uh, now, with, uh, or, which said uh, this past week or two when it came out, I read, I read it was about why we really should be careful about listening to the Greek philosophers because their paradigms and their lives were so very much different than ours. But it goes way off the deep end about that. It's saying, oh, you can't pay attention to any of those old guys. Well, Ishken, <laughs> to some extent, but with great caution and with due attention to the context. So, no, I do not want to live in the 1700s, according to the, the dictates of a priest of the 1700s. We're, we're looking at a time in, uh, in our uh, uh, social, uh, political life when we have a whole lot of people who want us to go back and live by the laws of the 17 and early 1800s. I defy anyone to really pretend, face on, that they want to live that way. Right. Uh, very few people would if they honestly read those laws. So I'm not saying that this is it, but it's just interesting that that word equal hmm. and that and and that word luck and and chance are all 
bundled up. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, it brings that the, the saying to mind, happy-go-lucky, right? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're sort of tied in that colloquial phrase. And I guess, you, you know, I don't, you don't really stop to think about what that even means, right? Do, do they go hand in hand? And it seems that they would, right? If you think of somebody who's lucky, um, what is luck, right? Luck is sort of this happenstance. Um, and you can look at it as positive or negative, but usually you're thinking of it in a positive sense. Somebody has good luck. So if somebody is, you know, lucky, it seems like good things just sort of happen to them. And if good things are just sort of happening to you, that makes you happy. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, and a luck, you know, luck and chance, you, it's, it's not too hard to see the connection there. So it is interesting how they're, they're wound up. It is. And, and it gets, and it gets bound up with, with the hedonistic. It gets bound up with, with the momentary. Mm. Hey, I want a lottery ticket. Hey, okay. So you get a little burst of adrenaline or serotonin or whatever it is. Mm. And, 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 and then the next moment, oh, right. Hey, I, I, I want to, I was talking with another, Marvelous former student. Uh, that's how this came up this week. Who had sent me this this article because um, she's talking about it in her graduate work. I wanted to come on and talk with us sometime. She she loves philosophy. She's well read in philosophy. I think we should have her as a guest. But we we had a, a almost two hour conversation about it earlier in the week. Hmm. Um, and the idea that that uh, which we'll we'll get to, but that somebody has dropped in his late eighties. Uh, somebody who's a so-called father of a, a particular field of behavioral economics has dropped this apparently bomb in in the practitioners of that field by uh, writing that uh, we're pursuing the wrong things. We're pursuing happiness when we should be pursuing satisfaction. Hmm. And apparently it just, it, it just shook everything up. And, and, and as we talked, I said, well, you know, th- that's not the first time this has been talked right. about. Uh, so it's very interesting the idea of happy because we we now I think uh, we have this it's almost like Tarzan swinging from vine to vine to vine in one of those goofy old movies. Oh, what's going to make me happy now? Ah, but I need my next burst of happiness. If I don't have that, then I'm afraid of what uh, what am I going to fall off the vine? I'm going to crash. What? We, we, and, and, and the advertisement and, and the whole culture of you're not good enough, but if you do this, you'll feel a little better about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that gives us a pretty good glimpse of, of yeah, where, where, the we're going. Yeah. where the episode's going to go. I like that you brought up etymology too, by the way. That's something that, that Amanda and I have been into quite a bit. It's gotten to the point now where if we're just talking in casual conversation, she'll say etymology, please. <laughs> I think the one we did the other day was uh, tepid. Uh, I said, she said, oh, the water's tepid. Etymology, please. And then, and then I try to guess, which is the fun part. I said, uh, we'll say Greek from, uh, you know, here <laughs> meaning, uh, mild or something. So, well, no, it's Latin from this meaning, you know, warm. <laughs> so, so yeah, happiness. I mean, that's an interesting one. You, when you think about, you know, some words just by looking at them, the arrangement of letters or the sounds, you mm-hmm. know, where they're mm-hmm. from. And every once in a while, one pops up and you go, oh, happiness. Well, where would that even come from? And where do we, and we think about it when it comes into, and this is not the time to talk about it yet. I guess I'm putting another pin in there. Love to refer to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, as if they know exactly what it means. Hmm. We don't know exactly what it means any more than we know exactly what any other combination of words means. But if you think about the word happiness and how legal scholars and Supreme Court justices uh, interpret that word. 
and what we think it means. It's very vastly different. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm dealing with this in, in one of my classes. Um, event, you know, essentially there's, you know, psychology is an interesting science because in, in the, the hard sciences, right? You have physics and chemistry and stuff. Yeah. Um, coming to empirical knowledge is, uh, I, I'm not going to say easy, but you know, you, you have a lot of mathematical things that, that make it, you know, hard, right? Solid. Um, with social sciences, it becomes a little bit more difficult because with psychology, you're a human studying humanity, right? And so I think I've mentioned it in the past few episodes, right? We're, we're not starting from a neutral place as hard as we might try. We have these value laden, um, presuppositions mm -hmm. and the, the, the object of study that we have is also a subjective, um, subjective being. And so, you know, there's different paradigms that talk about how, you know, we come to know things in a field that can't be identified by equations alone. Right. Um, and so that's something that, that, that plays into this. And we've talked about it in, in previous episodes, even the last episode, right? Language, right? This idea of, of a word, um, you know, how do we know what a word means and how are, are different people's interpretations of that word different? Um, so, you know, I'm looking at consciousness, right? Consciousness and dreaming, um, for my, for my doctoral degree. And, um, you know, the paradigm that I use is this, um, sort of levels of explanation viewpoint where it's saying, um, rather than trying to create some unified concept of what consciousness is, um, we should source knowledge from chemists and physicists and, um, you know, psychologists and, and from all of these different scientific fields and consider them with equal weight. And even if one of those fields seems to contradict the other field, in reality, they're not contradicting each other, but what each field is conceptualizing as consciousness is actually a completely different concept. Yeah, yeah. And so you gain a much broader and deeper knowledge about consciousness by sourcing knowledge from the individual fields and by letting those individual fields focus on their one thing than trying to create a unified thing or having a psychologist, um, you know, try to incorporate other things into it um right right and because you're 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 integrating into yourself right which which in the 1700s might have been considered a process of happiness <laughs> in which you are you are advancing your knowledge go back to aristotle so the the, the balanced life is the life in which you nothing to access, but you keep trying to know things. Right. Or, or Socrates, or you know thyself. Or what, you know. <laughs> so when did this sort of abstraction of happiness first arise? Well, you talked about the etymology of the word. Yeah. Um, but what, when, did, when did philosophers first start thinking about happiness? Uh, back to the beginning uh, uh, with various words uh, various various versions of the word for instance um if we if we go to what some of the most ancient said uh here's aristotle uh, 
he's he's saying that that happiness is a balance among things, including uh, and, and remembering that he was a metaphysician, even though we don't necessarily use the word in the same time. Um, studied biology, botany, ethics, even though all those categories didn't exist, what he was talking about, um, those categories were coming into being out of the, as I always say, the cauldron of philosophy, of science and these other things. So what you just said before about uh, about going to the field and looking at the systems and how they're speaking about things and, and understanding them and taking some of that and integrating in ways that those systems aren't going to integrate themselves. They're pursuing the specialty. We as human uh, lay people, so are generalists. So what do we learn from all of these things that pull together? Well, Aristotle, in a sense, was a strange crossover, I think, between a generalist in, in those terms and um, and somebody with, with uh, incredible amounts of interest in all kinds of fields. Somebody like you, who just all over the place. And and so, of course, he's going to talk about balance. I, I think, even though he's from a different culture, even though they're, they're what they wanted, and, and they were they were a misogynist culture, and they were all the things that we know that are negative and not the way we want to be now. But as an individual, he was talking about finding some kind of accumulative balance, and that that would be a kind of happiness. But where that, so it, it starts there. Hmm. But then we get up into documents speaking for groups of people. So the Declaration of Independence, let's jump to that. And, and, and happiness, you know, and what we declare about ourselves, that we, we, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, as, as, as well, um, Anthony Kennedy, a Supreme Court Justice in the early 2000s, was saying then, uh, he was lecturing about this. Happiness, pursuit of happiness, happiness meant to these founders the contribution uh, the, of oneself to civic duty, which would therefore make you part of things and therefore make you happy. The self-gratification happy thing didn't really begin to come to us until after the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so that's interesting, you know, thinking about how the concept of happiness um, has has changed over time, right? right? It hasn't remained constant. No. Now, hedonism, and we can go back to the... the to, <laughs> We can go back to Bacchus and the and wine and revel, revelry and just live for the moment because tomorrow you're going to die. All that's been around a long time. But happiness in the sense of what the founders meant and then happiness and what we say, no, 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 <laughs> screw everybody else. I want to do this now because it's for me. Hmm. What, what I want comes first. And, and the, the monstrous iteration of this that's been happening over the past few years is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting into um, sort of the meat of the discussion. And so now we'll ask this question because, you know, this idea, right, of of hedonism and like you mentioned with, with Tarzan, swinging from, from vine to vine, right? <laughs> yeah. This yeah. temporary sort of thing um, contrasted with 
that idea of contributing to society and, and being it, it seems like there's something different there. So can sustained happiness be attained or does it become something entirely different? Well, this is what uh, Daniel uh, Kahneman is saying, the, the guy that the article we read, but that you, you can't sustain to try to sustain that kind of moment to moment to moment happiness is, is essentially counterproductive to the building and maintenance of a, of a society or, or of business in his case, because he's talking about behavioral economics. Hmm. That's his field. And, but I can't, you know, it, it brings up so many things because now we, I'm, I'm hip hopping back and forth between Democritus, ancient Greek philosopher, who was called the cheerful philosopher, because for him, happiness is, well, have a laugh once in a while. You know, try to be cheerful. <laughs> okay. Um, now we're up to behavioral economics, a very specialized kind of thing, which, which, uh, takes apart, as I understand it, as establishes, uh, Kahneman and others, two levels of, of thinking. Uh, system one and system two, I think it is, in two kinds of language. The system one is the, the intuitive, the immediate. Oh, okay, uh, this is how I feel, and this is how I'm going to act. And um, his assertion, and then there's the second system two, which is logical analysis. And he says for too long, the people who were trying to um, convey uh, that economics, uh, and happiness coming through economics is, uh, comes because of people making good, logical, rational, thought out decisions about purchases and so on and so forth. And they don't, <laughs> as lots of research pretty much indicates. Some do, but for the most part, that's not how we work. And, and I think that at 88 years old, uh, and I haven't read all of his books, but I probably will now because I'm fascinated by what this guy is saying. Uh, uh, no, that's not sustainable. Yeah, I, you know, I'm sort of after reading the article, it it's it's deeply philosophical, right? It um, is. You know, I think that it's you know we think about it as being this this specialized academic field or something, but really the assertions that that he's making are are profoundly general in in terms of how they affect um, our our everyday lives, right? Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, I think about it, and I I think about myself, right? Because that's that's all you can do, right? Have well, then you know yourself, right? Subjective that's experience, it. right? And I think, okay, well, this idea of, of happiness versus satisfaction, and happiness being a momentary um, thing that that's sort of pleasing, and, and satisfaction um, being a long term thing, and he yeah. he illustrates this really well, right? He says, um, you know. Because he's trying to demonstrate that somebody could be happy, could live a happy life, but not a satisfied life, and vice versa. Um, and he basically says, listen, um, let's say, you know, you go through life and um, you spend a lot of time hanging out with your friends and, uh, you know, you do a lot of laughing and and you guys have good experiences and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you get to the end of your life and you look back and you see that... Um, you know, you worked some job that didn't really contribute anything. And, um, you know, you, you look back at your life and you, and you say, okay, well, I had a lot of happy moments, but ultimately 
my life in some is unsatisfying, right? Or the other way around. Um, according to his research, he says that um, really, like, money only contributes to happiness if there's a lack of it. So as long as you have enough money to provide food and shelter and, and clothing and these basic things, um, once you have what you need to survive, Money doesn't really contribute to happiness any further. Isn't that interesting? Beyond. It is. So it's very saying, oh, so, so this, this idea that oh, you can just accrue more and more more wealth. Well, of course, if you can't put food on the table, or you have to have two jobs and don't have time with your kids and everything. I think that that's what he's talking about. That's po- you know, poverty level. That's that's. Uh, and now we say, well, even middle class people. Well, that's because we keep saying we don't have a class system, but we but we do, and we can't even sort that out. But it, but if you if you can get a car that you need. If you can put uh, food on the table and, and you've got fuel, you've got some friends, you can go to the movie once in a while or watch a streaming service uh, or, or, or read or do whatever things you want to do. It doesn't matter whether you have a billion dollars, a million dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars. What matters is, do you address those things? I guess we can go to Maslow's scale on that, really. Uh, and, and so it's not about the accrual. It's not about being Midas. And, and then I go back and think about Plato, who, again, referencing that other article. <laughs> yeah. Plato was, uh, uh Plato was not a, a democratic fellow <laughs> in the least. That's why he wrote the Republic. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but Plato was adamant, uh, in his Ring of Gyges story. Remember that the, 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 it's, it's what Tolkien borrowed. Hmm. Uh, what happens if you get a ring? It makes you invisible. What would you do with that? And that's a marvelous uh, discussion that he has. But if you are, are, are uh, obsessed with your appetites, uh, then you are, you are governed by your appetites. And therefore, you're not rationally in control of yourself. And therefore, there's no way you can be happy. So again, the, the self-gratification, he, he, he says the person who enslaves himself to appetites cannot be happy. The person is always doing what he wants to do, no matter what. Cannot be happy. This is, and this gets so interesting, thinking uh, in the context of our conversation about conscious or sentience and consciousness yes, last yes. week, right? Because they follow these paradigms. Sentience is, you know, the ability to sense. And I think I said in last week's episode that um, really you start to understand um the difference when you remove, when you start to think of man as an animal, it removes that top layer of consciousness. And then you look at what sentience means. Mm -hmm. And sentience, this momentary sensation sort of correlates with this, this happiness or this idea of appetites or this sort of temporary thing. Whereas consciousness is this more um, integrative, synergistic, cognitive process um, that, that seems to correlate with satisfaction and um, reflection and these long-term things. Yeah. Um, but, and this is where, this is something philosophers have debated about for a long time, oh, is this idea of, well, does consciousness actually do that? Or is it kind of an illusion, right? At, at our core, are we just animals? And consciousness is this sort of unnecessary process at the top that allows us to think that we're making active decisions um, when in reality there's sort of this deterministic thing happening that is just allowing us to pursue our appetites in a way 
that provides us the safest avenue to do so, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. where the ring comes in, <laughs> right? If you have the ring in. that makes you turn invisible, yeah. would all men immediately turn into to animals? What does it remove that? Okay, well, the the social mores and norms and things um, that are holding those appetites back and, and causing me to act in a human way. If I have a way of removing those, do I immediately go into just being an animal or does the humanity remain? Does something still happen? And now you've hit on the core, one of the core, uh, I, I think, foundational. And yes, it's pop cultural because that's where a lot of philosophy for ordinary people goes on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the core of things of like the superhero story. Or the re-examination of it in The Watchmen. Or the re-examination of it in the TV show The Boys. Hmm. Where pretty much, for the most part, if you have a superpower, you, you, you're just corrupted. Hmm. Uh, almost automatically. If you look at the, the arc of that. Which is fascinating. Because yeah. then there are people who have powers. But they've been given powers scientifically through a drug. Um, that has changed them permanently. But if... If you have those powers, do you even have a, a hope of of trying to do good? And there are a couple who do. Uh, so it's just power corrupt, absolutely, and, and and all of those things. Yeah, and and you know, inevitably, the conversation comes to um, social media as well, and and technology. Um, I I really I watched something recently. It's it's probably the most horrifying thing I've ever watched <laughs> and not because it had blood or gore or any of these things, but because it is true. It's a story that actually happened. And it was a documentary about Woodstock 1999. Um, and this, what happens is they set up this music festival, um, obviously to emulate the original Woodstock, right, which is right. a festival about peace and love and all these things. Um, and it was a perfect storm that led to a terrible result, um, beginning with um, the original founder of Woodstock heading it up, but 30 years later, not being in touch with the music scene um, and signing acts who um, were very much not about peace and love, but had an anti-establishment um, bent to their lyrics and were very focused around anger and, and these sorts of things. Um, but on top of booking you know, all of, all of these bands that had this in common, um, the sort of uh, driving impetus of the festival was to make money. Yeah. And so as a result, <laughs> um, they outsourced a lot of their, a lot of their services. Um, a lot of things fell through and long story short, people ended up with, um, no, uh, no way of, of, going to the bathroom in a sanitary way um no clean water um no food um and what food and water there was were were gouged on prices vendors completely took advantage of of the scarcity and, and gouged prices um a lack of security um and the security that they did have being woefully underprepared and trained um and it, Event, and essentially what you see happen is in less than 36 hours, you see human beings turned into animals. Yeah. And they have all of this documented 
footage, you know, home videos and things showing what happened. And it's horrifying. Like I said, I think it's the, I think it's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. But the interesting part about it was, you know, as they intersplice the footage and the storytelling with interviews, um, you see this chasm of perspective emerge between the people who are running the shows and the people who are working at the level um, in various places and the artists, right? And, and things and just regular concert goers. Everybody got interviewed, right? And the owners and the founders of the show to the bitter end, you know, obviously they probably did not see <laughs> this documentary before it was released, um, but they were interviewed for it. And they still maintained that there's a very small group of people um, that started lighting things on fire and causing problems and stuff. Yeah. For the most part, it was a very successful show and everybody had a good time, but there's just this, this small group of people that ruined it for everybody. And you watch the footage and that's not the case. There's thousands of people creating hep. And, you know, you weigh, okay, you've deprived people of all of these things. You've created this scenario that is, you know, this violent, angry music, this lack of, um, human necessities, um, and an overarching, um, group that you can sort of direct your anger at. Um, and you, you wonder, well, how, what percentage of these people were causing the problem and what percentage weren't? Were the people that were causing the problems actually justified in some of the ways that they acted due to how they were treated it really this is right this is this question of, yeah. of it's not so much happiness or satisfaction as as the the negative image of of that right yeah. and how yeah. how people act um but yeah this this question right of what what is separating us from being an animal right, right. and 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 to what degree do the things that we associate with happiness make us or lead us into being animals or actually elevate us that um, the cynics <laughs> going back hopping back to the ancients uh, Antisthenes and Xenophon uh, so many of them um, essentially were saying or rejecting the idea that money pain uh, fame and power, would in any way be able to lead you to happiness? Hmm. You categorically reject this. No, it, it comes from from inside. Um, so, it, it, do you need do you need vendors? Do you need lots of hot dogs? Do you need uh, outhouses? Well, you do if you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to be at a major festival. Um, do you can you can you go to a place where there's music for an afternoon uh, that doesn't have to be a major festival? Or, 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 or can something that was supposed to be one thing and was in a certain age be totally corrupted into another age? Yes, because you can't relive that, which <laughs> it's much better to take what's going on in the moment. <laughs> and how do you, how do you uh, respond to that artistically or, or subversively? Yeah. Yeah. And so this brings me to another, um, thing. When we started talking about, it, I said that I was sort of torn about it. And the reason I'm torn about it is because of this categorization right this this divorcing um idea of system one and system two saying that you know okay well there's this temporary um happiness and then there's this um enduring satisfaction um because i don't think you know and and i'm sure that this isn't what he's trying to say that they're mutually exclusive 
but what I guess what you're using, right? What you're using to become happy um, can really determine whether or not you're satisfied in that moment, right? Yes. So, can happiness and satisfaction? I guess we'll start here. Can happiness and satisfaction be at odds with one another? Do well, you think that? <laughs> Yeah. Well, do I? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Too. No, no, I, I, that, that's pretty much the question, right? This is the question that was being posed um, from my other friend, former student, teacher, in a classroom that they're thinking about and going to have to talk about in in a week or so. Uh, which which side are you on, basically? And I I think that that was just a, a a clever setup by the, the professor. Right. right? Who's going to just take the, I'm with this or I'm with that. Whereas she, being a very deeply thinking individual, said, no, wait a minute. There are elements of both that can contribute to a life. And, and she's right. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, oh, I'm going to abandon anything that I associate with momentary joy. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no more Starbucks coffee ever? Because, or do I just drink? Starbucks coffee or have a have a have a donut or 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 you know whatever whatever earthly joy you get uh, momentary happiness is all the all the bacchanalian things uh do I have to abandon all of those in order to feel satisfied no do I have all of those all the time and that therefore makes me feel satisfied no mm-hmm. <laughs> and satisfaction I think is is I, I like that uh, Daniel Kahneman says, seems to say, uh, suggest that uh, satisfaction in total is a constant ongoing narrative. We write our own narratives. Well, that we've, we've talked about this kind of thing before. We write our narratives. Where our stories are ongoing. In those stories, there's there are terrible losses. There there are hurts. There are are disappointments. Does that mean we are bitter, ugly people? It doesn't have to. That. It means we have to fight for it sometimes. We have to accept these things. How do we respond to them? Respond to them as human beings and then go on. We get disappointed. We get hurt. Or do we, can we find our way? But overall, is the narrative one in which you said, yeah, I lived kind of the way I really would have been proud to live, or, or I did less harm than I might have, <laughs> right. you know, the, 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 the medical oath again, uh, the Hippocratic oath is so constantly present with me. Right. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, you look at it and I, it's going to be individual, right? It's going, it's going to be, um, each person's going to, to feel it differently. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, you look at who, who might be like the best example of this, um, ridding of momentary happiness. And I think that some of the people that popped in mind would be, um, like actors or high level athletes, right? These people that, okay, well, I'm going to cut out all of this, you know, I'm going to cut out any food that's not green and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to, to get all of my sleep and I'm going to, to train and I'm going to do these things and I'm going to dedicate myself to this craft. I'm going to immerse myself in this thing, um, in order to be the best actor athlete whatever whatever it may be right um and you know is is that person happy well it's hard to know right um and then on the other hand you looking at it the other way right the people who 
constantly indulged. We can all imagine the person that just eats whatever they want and drinks whatever they want and doesn't do anything that they don't want to do. Um, and, you know, are they satisfied? Like, like I said, I think this is going to be individualistic because I know for myself, right? I try to eat good, um, but I don't stick to it 100%, right? And so as a result, where is the happiness? Is the happiness in eating the junk food, right? Okay, I had pizza last night. Did pizza make me happy? Yes. So does that mean that when I'm eating good, I'm not happy? No. No. There's a perspective shift, right? At first, it it wasn't. You know, at first when I started trying to eat good, I was like, oh, this, you know, this doesn't really, this isn't really great. But then over time, and with a perspective shift, a, a conscious effort to shift a perspective, I realized, hey, you know what? Vegetables are actually pretty satisfying. They have this nice, satisfying crunch. Um, there's a, there's a high water content. Like I feel, you know, hydrated. I feel good after I, after I eat this thing. Now, does that feeling of goodness, um, of biting into a crisp apple or, you know, eating, uh, a kale salad, does that replace the goodness of eating pizza? Not for me. Maybe it does for other people. I'm not so sure, but my guess would be everybody's on this spectrum somewhere, right? Yeah. Perhaps, um, and we talked about this last week, sensitive, you know, sensitivity to things, right? Perhaps the bitter compounds in vegetables are so repulsive to some people that even with a, a concerted effort and with a, an attempt to shift a perspective, it just never becomes something that delivers any type of joy to them. And so maybe that person still tries to get their vegetables, still tries to get their fruits, but ultimately they end up eating a lot more junk food than somebody else. And maybe some people can just eat good food and it is is satisfying and mm-hmm. ha- makes them happy, right? And this food is just an easy example because it's something that we all do. But I think that other everyday activities also also work, right? W- working out working out is something I I've been working out <laughs> for um 23 years and from the very first time I started I loved it mm-hmm. and I always uh, I I can't think maybe I could count on one hand the number of time over 23 years that I've had to force myself to work out other than that I love doing it but that's just me personally right um you know school education learning new things there's uh, there's a whole range right life is filled with all of these activities and I think that you can draw this distinction between how those activities might bring you happiness and how those activities might bring you satisfaction. Um, but I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. And I don't believe that there's a right answer in what balance you should assume with them um, in a objective sort of way, I think it's always going to be a subjective. I think it is, but the uh, but the word is balance. Hmm. Now, now we know. I mean, uh, how how many of us have endured and or enjoyed <laughs> physics lessons of various kinds? Physics is fascinating, but think about a fulcrum and and different weights put on different and and how you can shorten or lengthen the the board and so on. But there's still Ultimately, you're looking for a balance, hmm. and and I think that that's where the satisfaction comes. I I, I can't uh, I if if 
Kahneman really believes that one is right and the other's wrong. And I can't think of a man at 88 years old who's a, a, a part of integral part of a whole field would necessarily be there, but maybe he is, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think so. Uh, he, he wrote in, 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 he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And this is the one that I, uh, one of them that I want to, to read. Uh, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. <laughs> okay. So pizza. I want pizza. I've been there. I, I like pizza too. I'm also a, a vegan. Uh, because my second born led us to that and it's marvelous. And my wife, uh, by choice, incredible maker of food. People who say, well, there's just such limited tastes in, in, and, and you, you use soy or, you know, uh, tofu. Well, there's, you, there's not much you can do with it. Oh my gosh. There's a universe of things you can do with it. And, and so it is delicious and it is satisfying and it does feel good. And that doesn't mean you don't like pizza. Well, if you're a strict vegan, you, you would have pizza. You can have pizza, but there's certain kinds of pizza you can have, right? So there's a balance. Uh, but I, I, I don't necessarily think that he's absolutely right and nothing in life is as important as you think it is. There are people in life who are, the, are as important as you think they are in that moment that you care for. But I think overall, there's something to that. Um, but I, but these other things that he's, that he's talking about, the difference between happy and satisfying. If, if you, you may be happy thinking that you were always right about a, a, a politics and, and, or, or about the way you're living life. And he says a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact. Hmm. Just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And pretty soon people think, well, yeah, that's so because I keep hearing it. Right. Well, so that may make you happy. Yeah. See, we just heard it again. So we know it's right rather than <laughs> the satisfaction of stopping thinking, really thinking, second guessing yourself for very good reasons. Um, which some, you know, we talked about companies, which some companies don't bother to do at all. And some companies actually allow within their system for that to take place. I think that's what he's talking about is, is do you want a workforce? Uh, do you want uh, an economic system that is actually trying to better the planet? Or do you want one that is trying to constantly make people think that they're not as happy as they could be seek that happy buy this thing do it and i think maybe that and i'm and i'm being arrogant and assuming this because i've not read enough of him yet but i think that yeah, that may be what he's going after with this model yeah yeah that's a really interesting um thing because i think that does get brought up so we'll ask the question do you need a comparison um, to feel satisfaction. Uh, Schadenfreude. <laughs> yeah, because there's an interesting question in that article, right, where he says um, satisfaction is usually a social yardstick, right? Mm. Usually it, you feel satisfied when you look around you and you feel that you're doing well. Now, the way that we've 
sort of couched satisfaction or talked about it thus far versus happiness, yeah. um, that might be sort of jolting to listeners. Because I think that at this point in the conversation, they're getting sort of conditioned to thinking, oh, well, happiness, um, maybe it's not bad, but you know, it's, it's you know, a momentary thing, but satisfaction is the long-term goal. But if we ask, does satisfaction need a comparison? Is If satisfaction is looking at people around you and feeling that you're doing well, you know, what's, what does that say about it, right? So do we, do we need a comparison to feel satisfaction? Do we need it? We've been trained into it. Hmm. I don't know that I, I, I would freely acknowledge that we've been trained into it. Keeping up with the Joneses used to be a phrase back in the 20th century. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't hear that as much now, but I, I still think the idea is there. And I think that advertisement schema uh, and modes certainly push that. You, know, you want to be better than everybody else? Have this product first. On the other hand, if you don't have this product, everybody else around you does. I think that's destructive. I, it's, it's just absolutely unconscionable, but it's, it's how it's done. And so, oh, this person has... I, I think people weaponize it. Yeah. Uh, e-bikes. I hadn't even thought about them. Talk to you about them. Uh, you, you and your wife uh, have had fine experiences with it. Made me think about it. Another way of thinking about greenness. Another way of thinking about home. How would how would that change one's uh, uh, recreational life and and so on and so forth? Well, okay. That doesn't mean oh they've all got a, an e bike. I got to have one too. Because what? Why? Why would I? <laughs> might I have one? Might it bring some happiness? Might it bring some longer-term satisfaction? I think that's what he's saying you think about it, instead of being prey to the very advertisement kind of stuff that he's been part of for so long. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't think to answer the question for me, I want to hear what your answer is. I, I don't think that it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I think that for me, it's kind of like I was talking about earlier with my view on my consciousness studies in psychology, right? I think that a philosopher and a behavioral economist, when they say satisfaction, are actually talking about two completely different concepts. I don't think that, you know, a behavioral economic, like you said, a person in that field is going to examine satisfaction from kind of a deficit standpoint because the goal of the research that they're doing is to create you know an an economic impetus right mm-hmm. is to get people to buy things to get people to think that they need things and so i think that the social comparison yardstick there works very well um people are not going to feel satisfied unless they're they're doing better than everyone else yeah. For a philosopher, I think that you're looking at, at something different. And I think that what that is, is what we've been talking about over the last 10 minutes or so is this, is the balance, um, is how it, it's possible for happiness to lead you into satisfaction. And I caught myself really lucky in that. And again, there's that word luck in association with happiness. It's very important, um, because of, of where I was born, um, who I was born. Um, you know, who my parents were, um, both from a genetic standpoint and from a social standpoint and, and all these different things. Um, I, I live a very happy life. And as a matter of fact, I think that most people who know me would, would readily admit that, 
you're almost never going to find somebody um, harder to upset than me. <laughs> I, have, I, I almost always have a smile on my face. I'm almost always having a good time regardless of, of the situation. Yes. Um, and there are things in my life that if you looked at them one way, you could say that it's focused on on a hedonistic happiness, right? Oh, okay. Well, look at him. He bought he bought a bunch of guitars or he bought an e-bike that he rides to his friends to play Dungeons and Dragons and walkie-talkies his wife on his iWatch. Like he's stuck in the, in like an adolescent phase, you know, there's not, you know, this isn't there's not a long-term satisfaction that's going to come from these things or whatever. Um and you know, I readily admit that you know, in opposition to most in American society, I don't really consider um employment to be the primary thing in my life, which isn't to say that I don't have some success there, right? I essentially run a, a, a plant, you know, I, I, I have a position there, yeah. um, but I don't consider that to be really important, but I have these other endeavors that I do, um, that make me happy, but that also make me satisfied. And, and there was an interesting thing in that article that I also picked up on, which was that, um, you know, they were talking about, I can't remember what it was exactly. I should, I should look it up, but, um, you know, the relationship, I think it was the relationship of money, right? And happiness. And I think about, okay, well, you know, I'm, I make music because I like making music, right? I don't do it to make money. Right. We do this podcast because we like doing the podcast. Yes. We, we don't make money, right? I like writing. I like all of the things that I do. Um, I do both because they make me happy in that moment. But also when I look back on my life, they're very satisfying, right? To look and see the the albums that I've written or the degrees that I've earned or the things that I've done. I'm not doing them for somebody else. I'm not I'm not getting my doctorate to get a job, right? right. I'm getting it because I enjoy the process of learning. I I, I do these things because I for its own sake. Right. right. Exactly. All right. Well, and that's it's all right, back to uh, kind of minute. Happiness is a momentary experience. That arises spontaneously and is fleeting. Meanwhile, satisfaction is a long-term feeling built over time and based on achieving goals and building the kind of life you admire. I, I, I might, I might remove admire and building the kind of life that you look at and essentially say, this has been the kind of life I want to live. Hmm. And that, and you, and you, and that can't happen in a single moment that can have that. And that happens in uncounted moments, but no, if, if for instance, you, you were, you were writing music because you just wanted to impress your wife or you were trying to impress a bunch of people. Look at me, look at the musician that I am. I can write songs better than anybody. You've never said that you don't do that. That's not why you do it. It's not why I do art. Very few people in my life see my art because it's not a show. You know, I, I, I share it. Sometimes I choose to share it uh, because I, th I think it might give someone um, a thought or you know a, a photograph that I take because it might bring some momentary distraction or happiness. Not that staring at that photograph is going to bring happiness for all of life. No. Um, but, but the joy of taking a photograph, knowing that you've caught it the way you would hope to, is enough in itself. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you let yourself do that, rather than 
we all sit like lumps sometimes, but it's just the nature of things. Right now, this transition for us here in this part of the state in which we live is kind of a clumsy trans, you know, it's a, it's a, it's been a rather dramatic, abrupt shift of seasonality. And it can make one feel like I don't want to be outside right now. It's chilly. I'm going to have another cup of coffee and just sit here and read. Okay, good. What's wrong? You know, we, we get, this is where that comparative thing happens. I think that you asked about before. If my neighbor's out cutting down trees and I'm sitting and, and reading, am I being a sluggard? Who cares? And, and if I am, what does that mean? That I think of myself in terms of how somebody else is spending their time and what makes that thing that somebody else is doing spending their time any more satisfying than it might be for me, but we get into these head trips because we are driven to, to, to compete about everything. Is my yard better than yours? Does my driveway look better than yours? Not do I want to maintain my driveway so it doesn't cost me as much over a period of time? And we also assume people's motives. <laughs> We've said that before about people who speed and we don't, you know, right. Yeah. Right. You know. So I, I think that the satisfaction is very yogic in a way, in the, in the sense of, Living in the now, because really, that's what we do, even though we, we think what's going to go, what, what terrible things have happened, what next thing is going to happen. But focusing on right now, what am I doing that I could be doing, that I should be doing, that I want to be doing, that is necessary to do. And there's always those compete, the competing mm. you know, elements, which really integrated. Instead of competing, I think that's, that's the derogatory term for me. Um, I want to draw today. I want to gather up some sticks and nuts before they get out of hand. I want to have a conversation in the podcast. I want, and there's nothing that stops that in a day. Hmm. May not be equal, <laughs> but it's enough to say, Hey, I had an interesting day. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you know, I think the, with a lot of our podcasts, right? The, the thing that we always joke about is that we start with a very simple topic and then we make it very difficult and then we never answer anything. I think that we've come pretty close in this one. I, I, I like the way that this conversation has developed with happiness and satisfaction. Yeah. Um, I guess the last question would be, can happiness as an ultimate goal be achieved outside of hedonism? So this is where... I'm, we're, we're going back to this idea, right? If, if happiness is your ultimate goal, right? We, we said it in the intro. If you were to ask the average person what they want out of life, they'd say to be happy. And maybe they don't actually mean that, right? Let's say they did. They want to be happy. They want, because like you just said, we only live in, in this moment, right? This is what we have. And so if my goal is to be happy in every moment, um, is hedonism your only option? Um, is it, is it just chasing those hits of dopamine or those, those chemical messengers that say, ah, this is good. Can you, can you achieve happiness outside of that really as an ultimate goal? Thank you for saying dopamine because I said serotonin. <laughs> <That's> wrong. <laughs> I stand corrected. I was searching for the word. So, so the question is. Uh, is it out of our control? Is that so if, if if happiness is your ultimate goal, right? Let's say yeah. that that's my goal. Okay. Now I understand what happiness is. It's this momentary, um, you know, sati satiation, right? And that is what I want. You know, I I don't really care about 
looking back on things. I care about the moment that I'm in and, and feeling good. Yeah. Can you achieve that outside of hedonism? <laughs> well, I think there are religious traditions that would say, sure you can. Always dwell in, choose your figure. <laughs> always dwell in the Lord. Always dwell in God. Always. I, I don't buy for a moment that the people achieve that and they're just steady state uh, I, because I don't think any being human, you can't be steady state. Hmm. So I, I, I don't think even if being the most hedonistic, I, I, I don't find that uh, uh, sustainable in, in a, in a happiness kind of way, because you're going to wreck your health. You're going to wreck your, and maybe that's okay. Maybe because you lived, 10 years, but you ate everything you could possibly eat and you drank everything you could possibly drink. And maybe, maybe that's enough. I think the, uh, a more interesting thing would be when somebody says, I want to be happy my whole life. Give me three synonyms for happiness. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's erase the word happy and you give me three other words that mean the same thing. Yeah. And see what people say with those. And then see if there's an integrative thing across satisfaction to happiness. Yeah, that that would be an interesting um, experiment for almost any word, because that's that's the big thing we run up against with all of our philosophy, right? Is what does the word mean? Yeah, and so and that would be a pretty easy study to conduct, right? Mm, ask um, somebody on the street. Yeah, name. You know, you just design a quiz with one question. <laughs> List three words that mean happiness list three words that mean happy and see what they say and then aggregate the data and, and split it out and see what people are actually thinking when they mean happy mm -hmm. happiness right mm -hmm. but i think that the point that you made is a good one which is that nothing in life is steady state right i like i said luckily consider myself to be a very happy and very satisfied individual but that's not, it's never constant, right? No, it can't you know, be. It you, can't pe be. People, people die. People, you know, you lose jobs. You, you experience setbacks. Um, so, and in those moments, you're not happy. It might still be possible to be satisfied if, um, you know, if, if you're not experiencing some existential danger or, you know, you have other things that, that sort of, um, give you a feeling of satisfaction but but happiness um it, it is it's just a momentary thing it cannot be held sustainably even that word setback i was just thinking about because i'm always thinking about words right what does that really imply that you're on a path you've been a you're a chess piece some invisible hand has taken you and put, put you back as if you're playing sorry or something right? shoots and ladders it shoots and ladders <laughs> oh so I should feel bad that I'm back to this spot when I should have been where? Is there a cartographic analysis? Is there a map where, which implies a, a vision of where I thought I was going to be? Is that happiness or is that, can I be satisfied even if I've received a setback? Yes. Yeah, because life isn't a linear thing like that, right? And a setback, it's really, the term doesn't make sense, right? Because Most of our metaphors don't. Right. Because... <laughs> You're not just getting set back and then retreading territory that you've already tread. No, life, that, that part is over. So now it's really just set you on a different path, right? Yeah. And so 
the life that may have been ceases to exist. You're now going in a, in a different direction. If we didn't have metaphors, we couldn't even talk. Yeah. But if, but if we don't examine our metaphors, <laughs> the, uh, brilliant books written about metaphors. Some of them have encountered by students in my classes and by me as well, you know, the, the, encountering these things. But ultimately we, we don't sometimes uh, with levity and curiosity examine those very metaphors and when we do then we say oh if that means that then maybe i don't mean this yeah Yeah, i think a large part of that that satisfaction might be the peace you make with diverging onto that different life path right Mm -hmm. you know if your your car makes breaks down and you can't make it to the first day of your your quote-unquote dream job and then you're forced to do something else do you let that affect how you feel about your life or do you put what you have into your next job and you know you you uh, approach it with an open mind and you 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 try to shift your perspective you try to do the things that you need to do um to to feel satisfied in life i think you know i think that there is there is a part of it that's proactive you know there's mm-hmm. definitely a, a large part of it that's there, proactive. There is. all right well it was a good one so until next time keep on doing it.